Hello, and welcome to the Book Love Foundation podcast. I'm Kevin Carlson from the Teacher Learning Sessions. This episode is part two of a conversation Penny had with John Irving last summer. We decided to make this conversation into three separate episodes because there was so much valuable material in it that we thought this would be an easier way for you to get as much from it as possible. So, you can hear part one in our previous episode, and after listening to this, please check out part three in our next episode. Now, here's Penny and more of her conversation with John Irving. I think about the words of Terence Depress in 1980, who said, Critics have sometimes missed the horror at the heart of Irving's vision. They've observed his high-spirited frolic and presumed mistakenly that Irving's whole point as a writer is play. Maybe, he says, but with one decisive difference. This kind of play, defiant, boisterous, recklessly brave, is Irving's hard-minded prescription for survival. I love how he says that Irving's dance between horror, the hardest, hardest truths and lives of these characters he creates, set right next to this playfulness and exuberance, um, is what sets his work apart. I would say that you'll also learn as you listen to this podcast that Irving's work is set apart simply by the way he tirelessly plans and orchestrates masterful complexity within his writing. We know the things that are compelling to us as readers. We, we know what makes us not be able to book down, as they say. We, we recognize when we're reading a novel, especially if it's at all long, if it's any good, we're more invested in it. We're more uh, into it in every way on page 400 than we were on page 40. And if we're not, we'll never finish it. Right. And if if you write a novel that's of any length whatsoever, that's longer than a short novel, you better know how to do that. You better know how to make the reader more interested uh, two or three hundred pages long than they were 20 or 30 pages long. It's, the fact that the pace picks up is not accidental. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's not accidental. In, in a, when you're cutting a film, that's where the editing works. You want the thing to move. Well, um, if you have... Uh, six scenes in as many minutes uh, that goes at a certain pace. If you have 12 scenes in six minutes, now you're moving more quickly. Um, It's a a very conscious manipulation. Uh, You should be climbing the hill slowly as you get into the story, noticing details that are important for you to retain and remember. But there comes a point when, even though it's you're still climbing the hill, when, when you're, there are more things you want to know. Yes, there's a lot you've learned, 
but there's got to be more ahead of you. Now, because you care about this character or you care about that character and you detest this character, now you sense the collision that's coming. Now you sense the conflict that's going to happen and you want to get to it. You want to find out the element of what's going to happen begins to uh, intrude in your consciousness or, or even in your unconscious mind and it makes you pick up the pace as a reader that's not an accident it's not an accident in the way you cut a film um movies are made in the editing uh i write the occasional screenplay but the, the part of every movie i've ever been in a part of it is the most enjoyable to me is is when the actors have all left and You've got all the scenes and you've got the angles and and now it's the editor. If 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 my principal business were the film business and instead of novels, I might have chosen to be an editor instead of a screenwriter because that's where that's where it happens. Uh-huh. That's that's where you to manipulate the pace. Well, that means sentences are like that. Um, you start out slow. We start out every chapter a little slow, and then something's going to happen. Something has to happen. And you have to plant the awareness of what it might be, or the a sense of not knowing what it might be, either or. And then the farther into a chapter, the farther into a scene you get, um, the sentences get shorter, uh, dialogue picks up, things move more quickly. That that just doesn't, you know. It's um, there's time to be descriptive and and a time to move the story ahead. And these things happen repeatedly. Uh-huh. Um, the ends of chapters aren't the same as the beginnings of chapters. Um, it's like the movie theater and at the beginning of the world according to Garb. There's a woman who's trying to watch a movie, and a guy keeps hitting on her. Um, and it's pretty ordinary. We think we've seen it before, until she reaches in her purse, and there's a scalpel in it. Now it's different. Now it's going to move very fast. So, you know, when you write about her moving seats, when you write about her holding her purse... Uh, the sentences change from the moment you get to the scalpel. Now, you can't make that happen necessarily in a first draft uh-huh. or in a second draft, but when you have the mini unit, which a chapter is, laid out before you, you can find a way to lengthen those sentences at the beginning of a chapter or when you're setting up an action and you want people to notice the details, you slow down. When you want people to notice the action, sentences get shorter and you speed it up. All those are just acts of fine-tuning. Yeah. Um, you know, in my case, my sport of choice for a huge part of my life was, was wrestling. It didn't have to be wrestling. It could have been something. But the, the issue of having any sport that you do pretty well and repeatedly for a sustained period of your life well, 
as any athlete in any sport, um, uh, beyond weekend uh, recreation, uh, knows or would tell you this is a hell of a lot of repetition. Yeah. You you do dumb little things over and over and over again until they are second nature. Because you have to be able to do those things. Yeah. Um, you it has to be something that you can do instantaneously without thinking about it. I don't have to tell Bard that there's a difference between a weekend skier and somebody who skis every day. Yeah. There is. Well, there's a difference between a summer vacation writer and somebody who writes every day, too. Oh, I That's so all. agree. I have my students write every single day for that reason, that idea that practice creates confidence and confidence empowers them. Well, you don't get it any other way. I don't I don't know how, um, you know, if you are in the habit of walking three or four miles every day and then there's a day when you want to walk 10 miles, no big deal. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I feel that, you know, if I'm, I'm writing three or four, five or six pages a day, every day doesn't seem like a lot, but if I don't do that every day, then I suddenly don't get the two days when I'm writing 30 pages a day. You don't get those days. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't do the five day every day for fifteen days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you gotta. You have to get. You have to sort of earn the right to be able to uh, do more. One last question for you. I have used up so much of your time, which, as you wrote on your blog, you would rather spend on your creative endeavors. <laughs> so I'm greatly indebted to you. But I am curious about your experience in school with reading, because you, you said a little bit in a podcast about what was identified in your son as dyslexia, I believe. Um, and I'm just curious about your experience with teachers and schooling and how that drove you as a reader and a writer. Well, I don't think I had a name to put on on how slow a reader I was as a kid in school. If I'd been outside the community of Exeter, if I hadn't been an insider, a faculty brat, um, if I'd applied to Exeter, uh, I would not have been accepted, I'm sure. I, I don't think I had the, the academic... Um, abilities to have been admitted to that school was the school was very hard for me um so in a way i was lucky because i was a faculty brat they took me but in a way another way i was unlucky because i for five years of my life i felt i was really stupid or that all of my friends were smarter than i was and it turned out that i was fine if i had one thing to do in fact, I was very good at concentrating on one thing, and I could concentrate on one thing for a lot longer than most of my friends could. But if I had five things to do, what nowadays they call multitasking, uh, that term didn't exist in the 50s, 60s, but um, it, it really threw me. Um, 
uh, school was misery for me. Um, but there were always individual teachers who recognized that I could write. One of the reasons I had trouble with all my other things was that I spent so goddamn much time on my writing um, and my reading that I had no time left over for the things I really didn't care much about anyway. But there were teachers, uh, English teachers for the most part, some history teachers who recognized the care with which I read and, you know, uh, how painstaking I'd been about anything I was writing. Um, and then they were kind of shocked and appalled when when I told them how long it had taken me to read these three chapters or how many times I'd already rewritten the essay I gave them um, before I uh, turned it in. Um, quite a number of years later, uh, when I'd already written a couple of books and one of my um, uh, children, my middle son, was in a uh, elementary school and someone diagnosed him as having this disability and they said well now watch him when he reads see how he puts his finger on the word and follows it and see how he especially has trouble when he gets to the bottom of a page and has to turn a page and go over there that and um and everything this this teacher was describing to me about my son was what i do and had always done and uh you know, no one had told me. No one had put a name on it. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't... It gave me a lot of trouble with the essential, well-rounded student thing that you're supposed to have some sciences and you're supposed to have some math and you're supposed to have some history and a foreign language and all these other things. And Well, I didn't feel that was in the right place until I was in graduate program at Iowa in the writer's workshop where all I had to do was write. Yeah. And I suddenly thought, oh, what part about this? Um, that was like being told it's wrestling season, all I have to do is wrestle. I know how to do that. Yeah. I, I think the people I feel the, the most sympathy for in the in, in among students are, are people for whom everything is such a struggle they can't they can't find the one thing. It's hard to imagine they, they have any motivation to, to sort of put up with uh, all the rest of it. Um, I mean, at least I always had somebody that, that um, you know, I, when I wrote a stint, nobody was, it was, you didn't have classes to write stories. But I was writing stories when I was 15 and 16. I was writing these little stories, and I always found somebody to read them. Huh. Uh, sometimes my stepfather. Um, who was always a good reader, and um, but usually an English teacher, um, and that teacher would read something and say, "Well, it wasn't on the reading list; it wasn't a part of school." But that that teacher would say, "You know, on the evidence of what I wrote, and on the evidence of I really like this book, I really like the book." And that teacher would say, "Well, here's a book; you should try this book." You know. Huh. Um, I kind of got through school because in every term or every semester, maybe you had four classes, maybe you had five, maybe you had only three, and you hated most of them. But there was always one that was good. And there was always 
uh, one teacher who was an ally, and the way I looked at it is, well, just have to pass the goddamn geology course, um, and you have to pass the Latin course, and you have to, you know, you have to do well enough to get over this damn thing, um, so that you can do the thing you want to do. Yeah. Um, and and so there was a lot of just defending yourself and um, uh, from all the rest of it. And so in a way, when I first went to Pittsburgh, um, where I was not one of the best, one of the weakest wrestlers on the team, I suddenly found myself surrounded, unlike at Exeter, with a lot of kids who, well, they were with the thing they could do. They they were on the wrestling team. Yeah. But everything else about everything else about school was killing them. And all of a sudden, I saw how I could help out. I mean, I I, I might have been the weakest guy in the team, but I was somebody that, when somebody was struggling with a paper, I could say, well, you know, this is not this is not where you use a comma. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not where a comma goes. <laughs> and whatever you think this is, it's not what you do with a semicolon. Um and so suddenly uh in, in instead of relying on everybody else's help I could I could help out a little. Um college was easier than, than prep school, uh, and graduate school was easiest of all because the farther you go in the educational world the more you get to focus on what you love, yeah, and and you reach a point where you don't have to deal with all the things that um, have no interest in, but but the demands of school are such that oh well, we all have to be well-rounded enough to do everything. Not that everyone can. Yeah, I find it a great irony over and over that that people say, well, writing can't taught. Do you believe that? All this creative writing courses now, we can't really teach people how to write. Well, nobody ever asked those questions about piano lessons. <laughs> so true. How many kids who through piano lessons are going to be Glenn Gould, right? Nobody ever asked that. Um, nobody ever asked how many serious athletes are, are, you know, we make people do phys ed. We make them go out for sports. Um, but... Most people aren't going to the Olympics. Um, we don't question these things, but there's always this question about, oh, writing programs. Oh, you can't really teach that. You can't really teach that. Well, in my experience, uh, uh, no, you can't, but you know, both as a teacher and as a student in writing courses, you know, I knew, I always knew who was going to be uh, who's gonna make it? Yeah, he didn't have any trouble knowing that in the wrestling room. However good the room was, he always said, "Yeah, well, I'm never gonna beat this guy, but I'll I'll be his sparring partner, and maybe I'll make him better." All you had to do is you work out with somebody once, and you'd say, "Well, I can't do that. Um, I, maybe I can help this guy a little, but beat him never." Uh, well, I knew the same thing in the writing classes. Uh, I would think, well, you, this guy's, we're going to hear from this person. Um, well, I'm never going to hear from that person. Yeah. 
but there's no reason not to do it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is part two of Penny and John's conversation. Part one is our previous episode, and part three is our next episode, in which Irving talks about endings, how he is an ending-driven writer, and how by the time he starts writing his novels, he knows almost everything that happens in them. It is quite remarkable to listen to. This conversation was recorded last summer as part of the Book Love Foundation Summer Book Club. The 2018 Summer Book Club is coming up soon. Look for details at booklovefoundation.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the Book Love Foundation podcast. And thank you for supporting the teacher learning sessions. Support comes from BookSource, a leading distributor of authentic literature for K-12 classrooms. BookSource believes that engaged reading is the key to a brighter future and that creating better readers has the power to create a better world. When students have access to a rich and varied classroom library and the ability to choose books that explore their personal interests, they enjoy reading and spend more time doing so. Visit BookSource.com to discover how BookSource can help you foster engaged reading in your classroom by getting the right books into the hands of your students. The Book Love Foundation podcast is produced by the Teacher Learning Sessions, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other. Thank you.